year. It's a time of, of reflection, a time of rejuvenation. Uh, it's a time of resolutions, many of which we end up breaking before the week is out. But I believe the Spirit of God would have me open up his word to help us in these endeavors, especially as we come together as a church embarking upon a new year. And like every year, this coming year is one that I'm certain will be filled with both joy and sorrow, pleasure as well as pain. It will be one filled with triumphs as well as defeats and celebrations as well as persecutions. And we must be careful that we don't become overconfident like Peter. Lord, I will never deny you. And we know the rest of the story. We must all be suspect of our own spirituality, admitting our weaknesses and our utter dependency on Christ for all things. For as Jesus said, apart from him, you can do nothing. I know some of you have had a very difficult year. I've walked with a number of you through some very foreboding situations. And I know even now some of you are lonely. Some of you are angry. Some of you are confused. There are some of you that are hopelessly in debt. There are even some that are sour and sullen bitter over difficulties in your life. And for some of you, the fruits of the Spirit look pretty sickly on the branch, if you understand what I mean. Some of you are discouraged and disappointed. There are some of you that are single and lonely, with no prospects of a spouse. I might say the only thing worse than being unmarried and wishing you were is being married and wishing you weren't. And some of you are in that situation. Some of you are disappointed in your children, the way they turned out. Some of you are disappointed in your career path, in your job, and even in your self-image. Some of you are disappointed with friends that didn't meet your expectations. Maybe you're even disappointed in some of your own life-dominating sins. And then, I'm sure those of you, or there are those of you within the sound of my voice that are discouraged about your health, about your usefulness for Christ, You're discouraged about your spiritual life. It's not what it should be. You feel out of sorts, out of fellowship. And sadly, it's common to have conversations with with believers who, who feel defeated. Very sad thing. To talk with believers who are struggling in ways where they they just say, you know, my my future is bleak, and I don't really know what's going on. Now, you add to that the moral freefall in our society, the chaos in our country, and sometimes you find yourself feeling as if there's, there's just no way of escaping, escaping all of this. And it's sad to be depressed. Sometimes we feel like Eeyore. Remember the the lugubrious little woe-is-me donkey that felt like everything is falling apart in his little world. Well, folks, all of these things can weigh upon us. All of these things can bring us down, can bring us to a place where we just feel overwhelmed. We lose our joy. We lose our power. leaves us feeling physically as well as spiritually weak. And often we're more weak than we think we are. And of course, this is flu season, right? And we all know what that does to you. You get the flu, and because of some little thing in our body, suddenly we have 
no energy whatsoever. You know, the same thing is true in our spiritual life. So the question before us this morning as we face a new year is is simply this. How, as a believer, can I find strength in my weakness? I hear people say to me, well, you need to be strong in the Lord. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you hear that and you say, I wish that were true with me. Somehow that just doesn't work in my life right now, and I'm not sure why. Routinely, I feel discouraged and disappointed and defeated and depressed. I often feel powerless and ineffective, useless, terrified to take a stand for Christ. You know, all of us feel these things from time to time, and so we can ask the question, does, does God offer us some practical ways to help us find strength in our weakness? And the answer is, yes, he does. We all struggle with these things, and as we face a new year, I'm sure there's going to be mounting adversity. I'm quite confident there will be in this church for various reasons because of the culture in which we live. And as we look at Scripture, we can see there are a variety of Bible characters who struggled with this very thing. And I want to just focus on one of them who was really the epitome of weakness, a young pastor by the name of Timothy who was the Apostle Paul's son in the faith. And as we study his life from Scripture, we can gather that that he was physically and emotionally and spiritually a, a rather weak man. He was a timid man, and yet he was thrust into leadership at the church at Ephesus that had been founded by the Apostle Paul. But God in his sweet providence had placed him into a place that had a lot of trouble. And here's a guy that needed strength of character in order to keep the wolves at bay. And he was struggling. We know from the gospel record and from First and Second Timothy in particular that some heretics had gained a platform in the church and they were causing some to defect. And Paul called them by name in 1 Timothy 1.20, Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Alexander's replacement was also another guy named Philetus that we read about in 2 Timothy 2.17. And he was also Hymenius's accomplice. So they had some factious heretics in there that were causing problems. Men known for their worldly and empty chatter, 2 Timothy 2, 16 and following tells us, that led to further ungodliness. Those who t- whose talk spreads, their, their talk spreads like gangrene, men who have gone astray from the truth and upset the faith of some and so forth. So naturally, Paul is very concerned about this church that he has founded. In fact, at the close of his first letter, he writes in 1 Timothy 6.20, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Now, you add the dynamics of what was going on in the church at Ephesus, to what was happening in the Roman Empire. And you really begin to get the picture. You see, the wicked, Christ-hating emperor Nero was escalating his persecution against Christians in the Roman Empire. In fact, Paul wrote Second Timothy while he was shackled in chains in a damp, cold prison cell knowing he would never be released, 
knowing that his execution was imminent, having been charged as a criminal against the Roman Empire. And according to tradition, he did suffer martyrdom, just like he had envisioned in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And we know in that same chapter, he, he summons Timothy to, to come quickly to visit him. He knew his time was short. We don't know if he ever made it or not, but that's what was going on. With Nero's persecution on the rise, many Christians were afraid, including Timothy. All of Paul's closest companions in ministry, except Luke and Onesiphorus and his household, had abandoned him for fear of persecution. And Paul was afraid that Timothy was going to collapse under the weight of these church troublemakers, as well as the terror of Nero's persecution. Put yourself in Timothy's position. Put yourself in that church. Are you willing to risk everything, your family, your life, perhaps be tortured and killed for the cause of Christ? Imagine the terrified saints of that day. Imagine what it would be like if the God-hating liberals of our country were to take it over. And say to us, renounce your faith in Christ or go to prison or be killed. And by the way, a time is coming under the rule of the Antichrist during the time of the tribulation when these things are going to happen just before Christ returns. Now we know historically that the devastating fire in Rome in July of AD 64 became a convenient scapegoat for Nero to blame Christians, and to stir up hatred towards them. And what's interesting, Paul wrote 2 Timothy around A.D. 66 and 67, and Nero began his persecution about A.D. 67. So this was right on the front edge of all of the persecution that was coming their way. And, of course, the fire in Rome ignited government-sponsored persecution against Christians. Christians, we know, later on were crucified and made to wear garments made stiff with wax and, and were set on fire to be torches for Nero's gardens. I might add that the world's hatred of Christians continued on into the second and third centuries, especially in the Roman Empire. And it really reached its zenith in the 4th century under the savage rule of Diocletian, who attempted to exterminate Christianity completely. And this continued until the rule of, of Constantine. And then when he came to power, he claimed to convert to Christianity, and he put a temporary end to all of that persecution um, in the proclamation of the Edict of Milan, which decreed tolerance for Christianity and the empire. So this type of persecution that was mounting has been going on for a long time. In fact, it will continue to be the history of the church. One historian states, and I quote, under the Roman Catholic Church, which replaced imperial Rome as the dominant power during the Middle Ages, persecution broke out anew. Ironically, this time, the persecution against true believers came from those who called themselves Christian. The horrors of the Inquisition, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, and the martyrdoms of many believers epitomized the Roman Church's effort to suppress the true gospel of Jesus Christ. More recently, believers have been brutally repressed by communist and Islamic regimes, in fact, it has been estimated by none other than a Roman Catholic source that in all of church history, roughly 70 million Christians have been killed for their profession of faith, with two-thirds of those martyrdoms occurring in recurring after the start of the 20th century. 
The actual number is likely much greater, the historian goes on to say. The Catholic journalist cited in this news article estimates that an average of 100,000 Christians have been killed every day since 1990. Folks, we live in a little bubble called Middle Tennessee and Calvary Bible Church. And we know that today it is politically incorrect to be a Bible-believing Christian, and we are being increasingly marginalized and maligned. We're typically described as narrow-minded, ignorant, hypocrites and bigots. And I don't think I have to convince you of the world's hatred for Christianity. And I, and I shudder to think what our children are going to grow up into in the days ahead. Now back to the historical context of Paul's final letter to Timothy. Obviously, they lived in a perilous season that would test the resolute determination and faith of any believer, the strength of anyone's character. And Paul now knows he's going to die, and he wants to pass the non-apostolic mantle of ministry on to Timothy. And yet he knew Timothy's spiritual knees were knocking together. His legs were growing weaker by the day. And no doubt people were leaving the church. In fact, in verse 15 of 2 Timothy 2, We read, all who are in Asia, Paul says, turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. These would have been two men that that Timothy would have known, men that have now deserted. And of course, this brought great disappointment to Paul. And no doubt some of Timothy's friends were beginning to abandon him. People weren't showing up for church. They weren't a part of the fellowship. And Paul's thinking to himself, who is going to carry on the work of the ministry if Timothy fails? And for this reason, we see Paul exhorting Timothy, for example, in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. Verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Verse 8, do not be ashamed of 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 the testimony of our Lord. Verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Verse 13, he says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. Verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Now, I know the season in which we live is not as bleak as that day, but persecution is mounting. And friends, we all experience some measure of weakness within us. And if we don't see it, our blindness is one of our greatest weaknesses. Frankly, Our flesh is a far more formidable foe than Satan's world system and all the persecution around us. I mean, for some, your commitment to personal holiness has grown weak. For some, your love for the truth has grown weak, but your love for the world has grown stronger. For some of you, your prayers have become lazy and and formal, and you really don't have a real enjoyment of God. You no longer pan after God, and you pursue things that are eternally inconsequential. Just look at your life. You've drifted away into a state of of lethargy and, and formalism and perhaps even hypocrisy. Your zeal for evangelism is weak. Some of you dear men... Don't shepherd your wives and your children. Some of you, dear mothers, spend more time on social media than bringing up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
Some of you have absolutely no desire for spiritual things, except, of course, when we come to church on Sunday. No secret devotion to God, no longing to know more of who Christ is and the power of his resurrection even within your life. And so you don't experience his power. You don't experience his presence. Many Christians today couldn't beat their way out of a wet paper bag theologically if they got into a debate. Most would cower in humiliation if they had to take an unpopular stand for Christ. This is also where Timothy was at. So how can I find strength and weakness? And the answer begins in verse 1. He says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The point is you have no strength in yourself but you have unlimited supernatural strength in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Think of grace this way in this context. It is the sufficiency of Christ in whom you are united. Remember in John fifteen five, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. To abide means to remain or continue. Or the, the, the obvious result of that is, is, is what he says, you and me and I and you were united to the triune Godhead. And to abide in Christ means to remain in fellowship with God in Christ. To have a sustained, conscious communion, a personal pursuit of holiness because sometimes that fellowship is interrupted because of sin and all the silly things we chase after. Paul exhorted the Ephesians in this regard in Ephesians 5, verse 15. He says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, goes on to say, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the same, by the way, as walking in the Spirit in Galatians 5. So to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus means to live your life under the influence of the Spirit of God. It's, it's letting the Word of Christ dwell within you richly, Colossians 3.16. To pursue holiness, to confess and repent of, of all known sin, to, to live coram Deo, the Latin phrase for in the presence of God. To let the word of God instruct your life and dominate your life. You therefore, or it could be translated, you then, my son. Or, or even this way, but you, my son. You, unlike the others, here's what I want you to do. As a personal note, because we live in such an age of of compromise and apostasy. I, I'm, I'm just watching the church go downstream. It's being swept downstream in the powerful currents of, of political correctness, of liberalism, feminism, egalitarianism, LGBTQism, and on and on it goes. Personal holiness and a commitment to biblical authority really means nothing to the vast majority of evangelicals today. It's heartbreaking. And even the message of the gospel has been so distorted, it bears little resemblance to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we read in the New Testament. And because of all of this, there's always the temptation to vacillate, to equivocate, to compromise. To go with the flow. And friends, by the way, had we done that, we would have probably be on our third building project by now. But whenever I hear the criticisms, and I hear them often, I hear the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. But you, son. Therefore you, then you, son, unlike the others... 
I want you to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I could almost put it this way. What I hear is, but you, David, you have been called to swim upstream against the current. And you have the power to do so because you are in Christ and because you are in him You can do all things through him who strengthens you. So I would ask you as we embark upon this little study, are you willing to tap into the resources that are already yours because you are in Christ and make a stand for him? Or are you a chameleon that's just going to blend in with the world to avoid detection? A dear old pastor counseled me as a young man during a very difficult season of my life. And I remember well, like it happened yesterday. You know those scenes that you have that you'll just never forget. And he leaned in close to me. And he said, David, dare to be a Daniel. He said it like three times. So I got the message. I'll never forget it. Basically what he was saying, dare to be a Daniel and and watch what God can do in and through you. And this was Paul's admonition to his dear son in the faith. You, therefore, my son, be strong. Now, let me get technical for a moment because this is important. Be strong is a present tense verb. It means keep on being strengthened. You, therefore, my son, keep on being strengthened. But it's also in the passive voice indicating that the source of your strength would not be coming from within you, but from something outside of you. And what is that? It is coming from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, through your continual dependence upon him. Oh, child of God, think about this. It was grace that saved us because we could not save ourselves. And it is grace that sanctifies us because we cannot make ourselves holy. And so it is also grace that empowers us in service because apart from him, we can do nothing. Ephesians 6 and verse 10, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And Paul gives testimony to the power of God's grace in his life in 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 17. He says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, this is such an amazing biblical principle, and you simply must grab a hold of it. Whatever God calls us to do or whatever he calls us to endure, he will provide all the grace we need to accomplish his purposes because he knows without that we can do nothing. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And he told Titus in Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. Dear friends, none of us are able to maintain the strength of character and the resolve in our faith to effectively witness for Christ and serve him the way that he would have us do. None of us. I don't care if, if, if your role right now is that of a single person or a single mom or a, a parent or a young person in, in high school or, or in college. 
Whatever your relationship, whatever your career, regardless of your role, even in serving in the church, none of us are sufficient in and of ourselves. Recognizing this, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, who is sufficient for these things? I find myself saying that a lot. Who is sufficient for these things? Lord, if you don't help me here, I'm I'm just going to fold up. And, of course, the question has already been answered in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And in Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within me. Now, the question is, how are we to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus practically? Well, the inspired apostle goes on to answer that by describing four kinds of people whose characteristics we should emulate. Four kinds of people, a teacher, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And this morning, we're just going to look at the first one. In verses 2 through 10, he will go on to provide some very practical specifics of how to tap into the the enabling power of God's all-sufficient grace because, because he knew Timothy needed this. I need this. And you need this. So do you want to find strength and weakness? Do you want to be able to tap in to the abundant resources that are already yours because you're in Christ Jesus? All right? Then number one, get serious about being a teacher. You think, what? Yes. Notice what he says. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. He This is where he begins. In other words, the the numerous people, the fellow preachers that you have heard and teach that have heard you and teachers, those who can testify uh, to the truth that you have taught privately and publicly. I want you to take these things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. And he's going to go on to say, I want you to entrust them to faithful men. Now, first of all, let's be reminded of what it is that Paul taught. He did not teach the traditions of men. He did not teach first century psychology or first century philosophy. He didn't conjure up things on his own. No, he taught the revelation of God that was given to him by Christ himself. Remember in Galatians 1 verse 11, Paul says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In Acts 20 and verse 27, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So what is it that we are to teach? It's the word of God. It's the Bible. He goes on to say, entrust In other words, entrust what you have heard from me to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Entrust is a term, paratithemi. It it means to uh, set beside or place beside or set before. It carries the idea of, of placing something valuable in safekeeping. And so Timothy is to entrust these things for safekeeping and for transmission to others. Beloved, the canon of Scripture is an invaluable treasure. David tells us in Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7, and this is a summary, that it is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. He goes on in those passages and says that it restores the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, and is righteous altogether. And in verse 10, this passage that you're familiar with, it is more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And Paul, later on in chapter 3 and verse 16, is going to remind Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God. 
and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And as we read Scripture, we learn that, that, that we are commanded to study it, to interpret it, to interpret it accurately, to meditate upon it, to memorize it, to preach it, and to guard it. Jude 3, we are to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Timothy, if you want to be strong in the Lord, you need to become a man of the word, the word that I have entrusted to you, having received it myself from the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you can entrust it to others. In January of 1925, a diphtheria epidemic broke out among the Alaskan natives around the remote little town of Nome, Alaska. At that time, it was a town of about 1,700 people in population. And in desperation, they contacted the people in Anchorage for the delivery of a life-saving serum, serum by airplane. But a massive territory-wide blizzard with winds up to 80 mile an hour and temperatures as low as 50 below zero made that impossible. The only way to get that life-saving serum was to ship it by rail to Nanana, which was the, the last railhead of Alaska, and then to retrieve that serum by dog sled. I have hunted in that region, and I know what it looks like there. I've not been there in the winter, but it's a, it's a remote area. So they organized a relay of dog sled teams to make the 674-mile trek from Nanana to Nome. Twenty mushers volunteered for that dangerous journey, and each man was willing to risk his life to be a part of that relay that would save many lives, a relay that took seven days after the serum left Nanana. You may recall the story of the small, heroic Siberian husky named Togo and his owner, Leonard Seppala, considered at that time to be the greatest of all sled, sled dog racers. There's a movie about this if you ever want to see it. Togo led the dog team of, of Sepulas and traveled the furthest in the run. They traveled 260 miles in that blizzard. A run that so exhausted little, little Togo that it ended his racing career. And thanks to these heroic men, the town of Nome was saved from extinction. Dear friends, what a picture of the kind of dedication and teamwork required to deliver a much more precious serum. And that is the serum of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're all to be a part of this relay team. And this is what Paul had in mind when he instructed Timothy. Yes, Timothy, the conditions are dangerous, but the need for the gospel to be delivered to these men and women who are dying in their sins is a mission of inestimable importance. So, Timothy, I need you. The Lord needs you, and he will empower you. But you must entrust this life-saving message to other men who can be trusted to run their leg of the relay. I want you to notice in the text, he was not to entrust it to just anyone, but to make it a priority to give it to, quote, faithful men for safekeeping, men that are trustworthy, that are dependable, men who are godly in character and conduct, and trust these two faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this has reference to men with the gift of teaching, and not everyone has that. Timothy, I, I like to think of it this way. You need to train a SEAL Team 6 to be around you. You're in a battle, men that you can count on, men that can train others, or you will not survive. 
Make this a priority for the glory of Christ. Timothy, if you want to be strong in the Lord, you need to know the word. You need to teach the word. You need to entrust this to other men that will surround you and go into battle with you. We see the same motif in 1 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God in this Case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Second Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not be, need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And if we, of course, we know for elders, First Timothy 3 and verse 2, they are to be apt to teach. Titus 1.9 Paul says that they must be men who are, quote, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. By the way, failure in this realm is why so many churches are weak. I can't tell you how many times I, I, I'm sure I could safely say one, maybe two times a week, somebody somewhere around the country and in Canada will email me and ask me if I know of a good church within driving distance of where they live. I hear that all the time. You see, weak pastors make weak elders, and weak elders make weak churches. And far too many pastors and churches want to be popular, to attract the crowds, to bring in more money. So they compromise. But dear friends, God has not called us to be popular. He has called us to be faithful. And you can only be one or the other. Which will it be? Timothy, take these things and entrust them to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that you, you, you don't teach everyone. The public ministry of Christ and the apostles proves that. But, but this has to be the priority for pastors and for elders. Elders, according to 1 Timothy 5.17, are men who work hard at preaching and teaching. We have to love everyone, and we do. And we shepherd everyone, we teach everyone. But I have learned over the years, I can't help everyone. I have to make it a priority to pour my life into a few faithful men so that they can be good stewards of this great treasure, so that they can teach others also. Down through generations, this is what has happened. That's how I heard the gospel. Aren't you thankful for that? Not for me, but in your situation. A young pastor asked me not too long ago, Dave, how do you find the faithful men who can teach others? And I thought, well, that's a great question. I, and the first thing that comes to my mind is just, just keep teaching and see who shows up and sticks around. I mean, that's a good place to start. But then look for godly men who have an ob obvious love for Christ and his people. L look for humble men who are resolute in their, their faith and their commitment to the gospel. Men with proven character whom others are, are drawn to for spiritual guidance. Look for men who have a, have a burden for the lost, a zeal for others to come to Christ. Men with a hunger to learn, with an appetite for Scripture. Men that are shepherding their wives and their children. Men that others are just naturally drawn to. By the way, I know a lot of men who love to teach and do so regularly and even fill pulpits who are none of these things. So, Timothy, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, I must add that this, this verse paints with a much broader brush than simply pastoral ministry. Every one of you should be a teacher. We're all called to this. This relates to each one of us. I mean, the Lord gave the great commission to all of us. Matthew 28, verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, but it's not just enough to give them the truth. He says, teaching them to observe practical application. 
were all to do that, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Husbands, you are to shepherd your wives and shepherd your children. Wives, you are to even share scripture and teach your husband in ways. You can, Nancy and I are always doing this. She's showing me something that the Lord has shown her, and I'm sharing with her something that he has shown me, and we sit together and we learn from one another. Parents, you're to bring up your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We're all called to teach. We're all called to make disciples in the sphere of influence in which God has placed us, grandparents with grandchildren, right? a young person in high school with a classmate, Sunday school teacher, youth leaders. You can do it on social media. My, what an opportunity to teach others, whether they want to hear it or not, right? Put it out there. They put everything else out there. Put the truth out there and watch what God does. Unleash it. Write letters. Ask the Spirit of God to show you someone you can invest in. And the question that I would put before you in closing this morning is, am I a faithful storehouse to safeguard this great treasure? Or do I merely come to church and, and feed upon the word that others prepare with a fork in one hand and a knife in the other, sitting at the table, gorging myself with all of this truth, but with no interest in feeding anyone else. I just take it in, but I never give it out. Folks, if this type of thing describes you, all that I've been saying, I want to say very kindly to you, you are a weak Christian. If you have no appetite for this, if if this is just silly to you, If this has not been a part of your character and conduct, you're weak. You're ineffective. You will vacillate. And you're not tapping in to the resources that are yours in Christ Jesus. You're not being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the danger here is very subtly, unwittingly, you begin to lapse into a state of complacency and shallowness that renders you ineffective in your service for Christ. And little by little, the joy goes, and you try to fill up your life with something else that will bring satisfaction. And of course, idols always promise more than they will ever deliver. They will promise joy and life, but all they will give you is sorrow and death. So easy to fall asleep in the garden rather than watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation, as Jesus said, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Flesh is weak. And because of this, dear friends, if this is you, you're going to forfeit blessing in your life. And when blizzard winds of discouragement and Disappointment and persecution begin to howl. You're going to cower in fear and not be of any use to anyone. And so, folks, as we begin a new year, I challenge you to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and begin to really take seriously this command to be a teacher, to take what God has entrusted to you and teach someone else. Be a man or a woman of the word. Some of my friends that are fellow pastors in other places, when we get together, we talk quite often, and, and one of them will inevitably say, inevitably say, so what are you reading? Folks, if you're not reading, you'll never be strong. There never needs to be a week goes by that you aren't investing yourself and some good quality reading. I mean, we've got it available on our little machines for crying out loud. You need to constantly be reading. You need to constantly be in the Word. 
meditating upon the Word, reading the Word. Listen to Bible expositors on your device. Make sure you have devotion books. Nancy and I have several that we love to read every morning. I mean, you just need to fill yourself with biblical truth. Attend the Bible studies that we provide for you. You need to constantly be reading and, and studying the Word. Remember the blessed man in Psalm 1 is one that refuses to associate with the wicked people, but it says his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates occasionally. Oh, I'm sorry. He meditates both day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever and in whatever he does, he prospers. Well, next week, Lord willing, we will examine three other kinds of people we must emulate. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that are so practical, so clear, so easy to understand. But because of the temptations of the world and and the weakness of our flesh. They are so hard to live. But we know that we can do this because of your grace that is in Christ Jesus. Help us to be strong. Help us to be a strong church, a teaching church. And for those that do not know you, oh, Lord, how I pray that you will make them miserable over their sin, that they might be so overwhelmed and so convicted that they cry out to you for saving grace. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.